I am somewhat familiar with the experience of putting together these model cars and planes and trucks. I'm somewhat familiar by watching my brother and my father do this. You know the kind I'm talking about? You buy in a kit with the parts and the decals and the paintbrush and, and that little bottle of glue that works better on fingers than anything else. I've watched my brother and my father put together more models over the years. My father, who's a Corvette fan, put together more and more. I don't, who, who even really cares about all the years and makes and models? But my father does. My father does. It was very common when they would finish these models, you would look in the bottom of the box and you would see just a few leftover pieces. Did that ever happen to you guys? And I would hear my brother say, uh-oh, oops, look at his little product. Well, still looks like a car, still kind of moves like a car. When we got married early on and had to move across the country, we bought an old beat-up upright piano. Now, I'm married to one of these men that put models together and lots of them. He even put a Star, Star Trek Enterprise together in his backyard as a little boy. So he's very aware of what happens with all these little parts. This upright piano we bought was beat up and bad, and a lot of the keys didn't work. It, it was supposed to be a surprise for me, and I know he didn't expect me home that early. When I walked in the day and saw the upright piano laying all over the carpet, parts and pieces and keys and screws and felts and everything that's supposed to go inside the piano spread out across the carpet. I know I was supposed to be grateful. And he knew it was not going to be possible. <laughs> he jumped up in a split second. It'll be good. It'll all be good. I promise it'll all be good. It's going to work. You're going to like it when it's done. The keys are going to go up and down. You know, he put it back together and the keys worked. And the action on every single one of those keys, perfect, except for it being a little bit out of tune. The thing was in great shape, which surprised me, only because when I looked to the side of the piano on the carpet, there was a pile of leftover parts. <laughs> and I heard, uh-oh, uh oops. Well, it still works, doesn't it? You know, I come to the end of this now eight weeks together studying the book of Genesis. My, we have just so lightly touched it even. Those of you who are just joining us for today, I'm, I'm sorry you're coming in at the end of the conversation because for those of us who have been here all along, for me in particular, it feels like we have some leftover parts. After seven weeks in the text, we have some parts of the story we've pulled out that might not fit back in the same way. We have some pieces that we externally have tried to put into the creation story that perhaps didn't belong there. More than once, several times, in fact, I myself have said, the, the text won't answer these questions. What we're asking, the text doesn't address. The text isn't written for those ideas, those leftover parts that that we never addressed here. Because I, as I've said, this is not a science book and it's not a history book, Genesis. So what do we do with all the leftover parts? It is, it is with the creation story much like atonement, the topic of atonement, how God saves us. Some of you are studying this in your Sabbath school quarterly this fall. That God saves, we understand. Now how God does that, we're working on. 
that God created, we seem to understand, but how God did that is what we're working on. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's how our story began with God hovering over a very special word for God attending to that which was going to happen. When I look at the leftover pieces in our story after these few weeks, what seems to me to be leftover is largely, well, these are scientific questions, scientific knowledge, modern knowledge we have today that does not seem to be addressed in the Genesis story. What do we do with theories and concepts in our world today that point to long ages of development of the universe and maybe even of life? In my lifetime and in yours, dominant scientific explanation has emerged that this earth is old, that humans are rather latecomers to the scene. How old? 100,000 years? 100 million years? 13 billion years old? What do we do with layers of death in the geological column that appear to predate a flood date, according to the Bible timeline we're all accustomed to inside Christianity, especially Adventist Christianity? If sin and evil come at the fall, at the time of Adam and Eve, how do we explain what looks like death that's older than a few thousand years? What do we do with all the layers of death that seem necessary for life, that life seems programmed to die, so to speak? Oh, that's just barely touching the surface now because I realize we're not specialists sitting in the room. By the way, if you're a scientist or have a scientific background at all, can I just put your hand up for a moment this morning? We want to know who you are. See, I have a little science degree also, but I'm not sure. I think that's more dangerous than anything for me. See, we realize very quickly that we get beyond what most of us can comprehend. However, there seems to be a rub with these extra pieces we've not yet discussed in our sermon series. Modern scientific knowledge where it bumps up against the Christian story we're so familiar with and that we love and that seems to conflict. Remember, those pieces aren't known to the Israelites. Remember early on when we began our conversation, categories like science and religion, Israelites don't know anything about. Discipline of science that doesn't begin until the mid-17th century. So we're asking questions today the Israelites never would have answered. Since the biblical story is God's story, and since nature, the world, is also God's story, you would agree, wouldn't you? Who created the world? God. Since the biblical story is God and the created world is also God's, God seems to be the common denominator in all of these pieces. The loose loose component is humans and human interpretations and how humans understand all of this. Humans. When there is conflict and rub in these, bringing these worlds together, I think it's often the humans who are the conflict agent in this conversation. One of the ways we can help ourselves with these leftover pieces, modern science, is to know how differently people approach the conversation. Just think of a scientist. If you are one or you know one, you understand this immediately. For scientists, science is just science. They just observe the world and try to explain what they see. It's not right or wrong. It's disciplined study. It's a rational study, logical testing of explanations, looking for natural phenomena, science that doesn't address supernatural causes, miracles, and God, things you and I look for. 
It's not good or bad, really, to know what we know about science. It's not good to know that cells split the way they split at such a young age. It's not bad to know how species and plants differentiate. It's neither good nor bad. It just is. It just is. Now, that's different from saying there's good and bad science, sloppy science. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying, as far as the scientist is concerned, they don't assign value to it. A good, that's, good to, you know, that's good science and, and that's bad science. It's just all science. It's what they observe. Simple. Trying to explain things. For Christians now, we approach the conversation very differently, don't we? Because we begin with the Bible in our hands. And these first three chapters of Genesis that we've been studying, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, this is the foundation we bring to the conversation, whether we realize it or not. The, it, it, it's become a, what people are calling the biblical worldview, and I think we're going to have to get used to that word, the worldview, because it's in all sorts of places now. And it's in college curriculum and in books all over the place. What's your worldview, people will ask. People used to say, well, what's your philosophy of life? You know, how do you think we came to be? Well, what's your worldview? How do you answer questions like, how did we get here, and what's our connection to each other in the world, and how should people live, and do we all live by the same standards, and where do we look for guidance? How do we explain what's happening, and, and is there one story that holds all of this together, and where does God fit in any of this? For the Christian biblical worldview, we begin with that last question, where does God fit? Well, he's in the first verse of the Bible, right? In the beginning, God, so we start there. God did all of this. God called it into being. God invited you and I to participate in creation. It's at the will of God. Everything exists. And then, and then Adam and Eve, and then sin, and then corruption, and then fractured, broken relationships. And it's why the world looks the way it looks today. But we know God is working a plan of redemption that someday, and, and you see, that's our biblical worldview. It's the way we explain life, the universe, everything. That's how a Christian comes to this conversation we should also just note the secular mind in all of this because there are other options. The secular mind that doesn't have your Christian or biblical worldview could approach this in all sorts of other ways. But they ask the same questions. Maybe they take a hold of bits and pieces of our biblical story. Maybe they have stories from their family or other faith traditions. Maybe they just don't know. Everyone approaches the conversation some way. As a faith community here inside the church, when I'm thinking about these leftover pieces and where the rub comes for us as Christians with scientific knowledge, you know, we really can't control the scientific part of the equation. We don't do that as a community. But we can talk about the Christian and the Christian community part of the equation. How do Christians interact with this conversation? What does a Christian bring to the conflict and to the rub? Now, some of us don't bring any conflict at all. I don't know how it was for you when you were growing up. When I was growing up, I remember dinosaurs in particular. What, uh, what were you told about them? I was told that they just don't exist. Anybody told that? Never existed, man's invention? Am I the only one that was told that? You're frowning at me. Did you know that too? Okay, Joy, there's two of us. I was just told to ignore it. It was evil. Man's invention. Wrong. So this week in the news, maybe some of you saw, in the border between Arizona and Utah, over 1,000 what they think are dinosaur prints and some tail drag marks also out there in the desert. They originally thought these were potholes of water had created. 
but they're very convinced now, four different kinds of track marks, some small, some measuring up to 16 inches across, covered by sand all, all this time until more recently. The, uh, the lead scientist from the University of Utah says it's a little bit like Dance Dance Revolution out there, those of you who know that game. The paw prints are so close and together, this must have been a watering hole where these creatures gathered, a little marshy spot. But when I was growing up, we would have looked at this and I would have been told, didn't happen. Somebody invented that. Those are watermarks. Some people don't bring any conflict to the story. It's just over, they're wrong, done. All we can discuss, really, and all we have control over is our part, the, what Christians bring to these conflicts, how we interact with the information. Here's a few suggestions that I'd like to remember. I invite you to remember. We remember that Genesis is written for people like us, people of faith. Genesis is written for people who already know about a God and are persuaded about a God. It's their story. It isn't a defense or an apology. If it's an apology, if it's an explanation in any way, it would be that God is the one God above all the other choices Israelites had at that time. But other than that, it, Genesis 1 to 4 isn't something you can just give a scientist and say, here, read this, and then you'll know, right? It's not written for Darwin or Dawkins. It's written for people inside the faith community. And that matters. We'll have to remember that our text is important because we've granted it authority, because we have faith in it, because we allow it that position in our life. You know, the average person in the world today, you hand them the Bible, they won't look at it with any more authority than anything else you give them to read. The newspaper, any other piece of literature they won't look upon it with the same set of eyes you and I do. We have to remember Genesis is written for people of faith. We should also remember that our work with the Bible is incomplete. The faith and science conversations that happened in 2002, 3, and 4, which were sponsored by our general conference, happened because we know the conversations are incomplete. And if you like to read about those, if you didn't read about them when they were published in the review, uh, they are there on that website, and they are also on the Adventist Today website. What happens when you bring a few dozen theologians and scholars together who are also Adventists, and they talk about the rub where science, modern science, and our faith story rub? What we found is there's consensus on some things, but there's not consensus on a lot of other things. So we have to be careful when we say the one authoritative Adventist view about this position or that position. And this is why our doctrine, our fundamental beliefs are written so carefully. They allow a little room in there for people to, a little wiggle room depending upon how you are thinking about these facts and these texts. We need to remember that our work on the Bible, it's, it's incomplete. We'll have to keep working as a community on these texts, what they mean, what the text says, and then what it means inside of the community. You know, a few weeks ago up in Northern California, I met a young adult who's had a tattoo put on her ankle. Comes from a small little Adventist church, very upset with her that she put this tattoo on her ankle. She's breaking one of the Levitical laws. And so she helped, asked me to help her understand the Levitical laws, which I am not a specialist in, by the way. I really had not remembered this one. Do you know Leviticus 19.28? It says, Do not cut your flesh for the dead, nor put marks on your body. 
And so she has a little community, a little church that is trying several creative ways of getting her out or getting it off of her leg because she's not taking the text seriously. By the way, it's the same text that says men don't cut the hair growing by the sides of your face and the hair at the end of your beard and when the elderly are present, stand up. It's the same Bible, the same text. We have to understand our work on the text is not done yet, and our use and abuse of these texts is as plentiful as ever in Adventist Christianity. We are so creative at this. There's more work to do. There's also more work to do with science, the modern scientific discoveries that are happening, those things that shed light on our theological convictions and our, our experience in the world. I very much agree with Ellen White when she says that the Bible and the nature shed light one on the other. The book of nature, the book of revelation bear the impress of the same master mind. They cannot but speak in harmony. So when they're not in harmony, who's the agent of conflict? Us. When the Bible and science and the world don't appear to be in harmony, we probably have more work to do. We need to remember our work isn't done. We also could remember that the way we work on these things matter. When Ben Clausen spoke with us a few weeks ago, he reminded us, and I believe Steve Dunbar agrees, we need a humble posture as professionals inside the community, a humble posture as scientists, a humble posture as theologians, as all of us end up being students of the text and deciding what these texts mean. We need to enter the conversations in a humble manner. It matters how we have these conversations, doesn't it? Steve said agape love. Dr. Clausen said a few weeks ago, this is, this is on, heavy on his heart. When he moves into the world to talk to his, to, to his uh, colleagues from other universities who don't have his biblical worldview, how necessary it is to be humble when we enter the world, that we listen, that we take time to get to know people with views that are different from ours, that we see beyond ideas and we actually see the people speaking to us, that we behave well. That would be much more convincing in the world than any Bible text or any scientific idea an Adventist Christian could teach. That we behave well. I believe I've said more than once here, we can't share the good news and be the bad news. The way we move around the conversation matters. It helps us to remember that often we hold on tight to ideas and convictions and beliefs because we are afraid or we're threatened, and you just have to remember back to your childhood days. Maybe not even that far, just look at the the economic uh, industry right now, when you think your money is draining straight through your fingers, don't you just have this urge to gather it all up and hide it safe? When we feel threatened, we usually cling tighter to things. Watch a child on a playground. If they think someone's going to take their toys, by golly, they hold on tight. They might hide them. And it's a question to ask. I have asked myself, what frightens me about modern science? Where do I feel threatened as a Christian? What scares me? Some of you remember the story of Winnie the Pooh and Piglet when they go hunting for a woozle. 
Pooh sees a paw print in the snow, and they think it might be a woozle. Don't ask me what a woozle is, but a creature. And so he gets Piglet, and they decide to see where the prints take them. And the longer they go on together, they see a second set of prints has come to join the first set of prints. And Pooh says, whatever it was has been joined by whatever it is. Let's keep going. And they keep moving along together. And Pooh gets rather excited. And Piglet's getting a little cautious now and, until they keep going in the story. And there's another set of prints. And Piglet all of a sudden remembers he must go home and do something he forgot to do yesterday. Gone. Piglet's gone. Leaves Pooh to keep following the tracks in the snow. And Pooh doesn't go much longer before he realizes that Christopher Robin's been sitting up in the tree right above them, and Pooh and Piglet have been circling and round and around a tree. And it is their own paw marks in the snow they saw. Pooh sits down and says, I am a bear of no brains at all. For you see, that's really what science is. It's speculation. When it's your own print, then you get up the next day and you look out in the world and see what else you can observe. But where did Piglet end up? He's at home, afraid. And I have asked myself, as an Adventist Christian, could I be afraid of something the modern world, modern science wants to teach me? What if they prove something that, that I don't want to hear, that, that conflicts so deeply with something I value. And I have imagined the last week or two a conversation with God that one day we're face to face and I meet God and God tells me that we had it wrong all this time, that Sabbath was actually Friday. We were one day off. And I sit in God's presence. I am a bear of no brain at all. We had it wrong. And then God says to me, but do you regret? Do you regret, regret 24 hours in my presence week after week? Do you regret the rest and the restoration you had for a lifetime? Do you regret that pause and then being sent back out into the world, sharing all of that with a community? So you were wrong on a fact, but do you regret? Of course, what would you say? No. It makes me question, what am I holding on to so tight? What, what am I afraid of? You know, I don't hold on to a lunar calendar, a gravitational pull, something that creates spaces and times. I'm not holding on to that day on a calendar. I'm grasping on to the God of that day, right? I'm grasping on to the relationship with that God. I'm grabbing on to the blessing I get from being with that God. Isn't that right? What, it, it causes us to question are you holding tightly to something because you feel afraid or threatened? What would that be? Because at the end of the day when you lie your head down and in the morning when you rise up, I know two things for sure. People are more important than any concepts or ideas we've decided. People are more important. Lots of smart people ones before me have already said that. That's not a new idea. 
I know for sure when I lay down and when I rise up, people are more important than any idea or concept or notion or doctrine or belief or anything else. People are more important. And I also know when I lie down and I rise up tomorrow morning, God will be more than I imagined. God will be bigger than what I thought. Yesterday what I thought God was, today, tomorrow, the next day, it will always be more and bigger and beyond what anybody could ever explain to me. What, why do I feel threatened? The most basic need I have, the most basic need you have in the Genesis story is to be in relationship with our Creator. There is nothing modern science can do to take that away from me or you. Which is why the psalmist records the truth this way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you've ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what are humans that you are mindful of us? What is the Son of Man that you care for him? O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Christians caught up in this creation story for the world, scientific and secular. It will always be a God of wonders far beyond our galaxy, far beyond what we could ever describe. May we find our faithful part in that creation story as a community. That is my prayer. Amen.